and they both got off the train together in Sheffield and the old man turned to my friend and said, I'm Dickie Bird, by the way. If you don't know who Dickie Bird is, well, he was a famous Yorkshire cricket umpire. To which my friend simply replied, I know, which I thought was a great way of sort of engaging with celebrity without, without bothering to acknowledge it. But um, sometimes in our conversations with strangers like that, we get on to asking questions which are designed to figure out what kind of person you're dealing with. You know, where do they stand on a particular issue? Are they on my side or are they on the other side? Is this person one of us? And this story in Luke is one of those situations. It tells, tells us about a conversation between a group of Sadducees and Jesus. Now, the Sadducees, as you will remember from your religious studies classes, uh, they were notable because of their views on the resurrection. They didn't believe in it. They were sad, you see. Yeah. But, but I want to tell you a bit more about the sad, you sees. They, they tended to mix with the influential people and the aristocrats in high society and sort of provide them with what you might call the dominant narrative. This is what we believe. And they took their authority exclusively from the first five books of, the old, of our Old Testament, the books that are traditionally considered to have been written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 25 that it states quite clearly that if a man dies leaving a wife but no children, the man's brother shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. In fact, the widow was forbidden to marry anyone from outside the family. I can sense some of you wincing at the thought of what the implications might be if that was still a law that we had to pay attention to. But mercifully, uh, we, because of Jesus, we don't need to uh, uh, apply that to ourselves. And the idea was that the deceased brother would live on through any male children that were produced by this new arrangement, if I may call it that. That was what the Sadducees understood by life after death. Not the bodily resurrection for the individual, but a kind of living on through the male offspring. And if that's what Moses was saying, that it was the right thing to do, that's what they did. And it was also the right understanding of what resurrection meant. I want you to picture the scene. Jesus was out in a busy public place in Jerusalem. He was most likely with some of his disciples. There's a fair chance that there were some Pharisees nearby. Now the Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, uh, took their authority from a wider range of Jewish writings and traditions. And they did believe in the bodily resurrection from the dead. So what these Sadducees were trying to do was put Jesus on the spot in public and see if he would side with them. I mean, they were pretty confident they'd got a cast iron case. Moses wasn't going to be wrong on an important matter like this. So they didn't just ask a straightforward question like, do you believe in the resurrection from the dead? Instead, they presented an extraordinary scenario. And there it is in verses 29 to 33. A man dies, leaving a wife and no children. Now, there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second and the third married her. 
And so, in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, here's the the crunch question with a bit of giggling. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Perhaps they'd ask such a question to doubters in their own camp before, only to have the doubter admit, oh yes, you must be right. To believe anything else would make no sense. It would be quite ridiculous. But Jesus takes them by surprise and responds with two points. First of all, he declares something new. He speaks as someone who has already been there and knows what it's like. In verse 34, he explains, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry or are given in marriage. Jesus tells them that there are two ages, this age and that age, the age to come. Things will be different in the age to come. There will be no such thing as marriage. And even more importantly, there will be no such thing as death. So of all the things that he could have said about the coming age, why does he bring up death? Well, he's explaining to the Sadducees where they are wrong in their thinking. The fact of the matter is that there is no need to have a male heir to carry on the family name in a situation where there is no death. Marrying and having children become redundant. And the second thing Jesus does is to put them right on their understanding of what was being said in Exodus chapter 3, where God, from the burning bush, uh, is quoted as saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus clarifies that the implication is that all three of them were still alive in God's presence. In other words, they'd undergone some sort of bodily resurrection. Jesus effectively says, there's more to this than you think. There will be a bodily resurrection for those considered worthy by him. But it will be a transformed body that doesn't die. As we stand back and consider this story, I think we see Jesus is someone who resists classification And he also resists any attempt by any group to adopt him as one of their own. He refuses to fit in. On the question of the resurrection, he actually has more in common with the Pharisees. However, later on, he goes on to condemn them because of their attitudes and actions. And the other thing we should notice is that Jesus is seen as the outsider. He's neither with the Sadducees or the Pharisees. He's not part of the establishment. Which kind of makes me wonder if if Jesus was on the train to London and he had the choice to sit with an elderly cricket umpire or a young man with tattoos, green hair and some eye makeup, which seat would he choose? We could talk about that later. It seems to me as I read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life that he usually stands with the outsider. He's more comfortable in the company of the marginalized. And earlier in Luke, we have a story which illustrates this very well. It's the story he tells of a great dinner in the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 14. He's sitting at dinner 
uh, in the house of a Pharisee. And someone says to him, won't it be great when we can sit like this in the great dinner in the kingdom of God? And Jesus then goes on to tell them a story. And in the story, a great dinner is arranged. All the usual people are invited, but one by one, they give rather lame excuses as to why they're not coming. And this inflames the host who tells his people to uh, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And they are the ones who accept the invitation and join him at the great dinner. So this was, as I say, at the home of a leading Pharisee. The kind of people who took it for granted that they would always be invited to any special banquet so, to so much so that they thought they could afford to pick and choose without consequence. But that won't be the case with the banquet Jesus has in mind, the great dinner in the kingdom of God. The danger for the prominent in crowd, who think they've never put a foot wrong, the ones who think they're sorted and they think they've worked everything out and nailed everything down, is that they will say no to Jesus' invitation. And then what will happen is the invitation will be extended to the outsiders and the misfits and they will say yes to Jesus. For us it can feel, it can be easy to feel like an outsider sometimes. Everybody else seems to be happily married with children, holding down a responsible job, enjoying respect. But maybe we're divorced previously, perhaps we have a life that is limited by illness or infirmity. Maybe as we look back in our lives, we regret some decisions that we've made. Maybe now as you reflect on yourself, you consider yourself a bit broken, a bit patched up at best. But Jesus says, I'm with you. It's the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame who will sit with me at the table for the great dinner in the kingdom of God. The thing is, ours is the God of the outsider, the God of the other. It's people like us who are invited to the great dinner in the kingdom of God and who are likely, like, likely to accept the invitation. When Jesus, with a heart of love, offers to forgive and include us, we say yes. So I say hold on to the fact that you defy easy classification. Celebrate the fact that you are different, that you are other. Don't turn a blind eye to your brokenness. It's when we can still see our brokenness that we are in a good place for what God has in mind for us. Some of you will remember this song by Leonard Cohen, the Canadian poet and singer, whose song goes like this, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget the perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And our God is not just the God of the other and the God of the broken. In the age to come, he is the God of transformation and resurrection. And that's what he plans for us. Between this age and the age to come, there will be a process of transformation. Ultimately, our bodies will be transformed for the age to come. 
But when we say yes to Jesus, to his invitation, a process begins where we are transformed by the Spirit on the inside. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't conform, be transformed. And remember, this is an ongoing process. It doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus. It might be weeks, it might be decades. The process of transformation is ongoing. Luke, the author of this gospel, was a non-Jew. He was an outsider. And perhaps that's why it's a wonderful book for outsiders to read. So here's a suggestion for you. Why don't you read through Luke's gospel this week at home? You'll be reminded of the man with, or just to whet your appetite, uh, the man with leprosy excluded because of his skin disease the paralyzed man unable to work because of his infirmity, the tax collector shunned because of his profession, the grieving widow, the sinful woman who people wagged their fingers at because of her past, the man with mental illness on the edge of society, the Samaritan with the wrong cultural credentials, the crippled woman, the son who lost his way and only came to his senses while he was feeding the pigs. If you worry about your brokenness, there are plenty of examples here to encourage you that Jesus wants to be involved in your life too. And as I finish, I want to say a few words about belonging. We naturally naturally like the idea of belonging. People are proud to be British, to be from Yorkshire, uh, to be from a certain city, to be part of a family, or a profession, or a denomination, or a political party. These things form part of our identity. They're important to us. But I want to suggest to to you that if we reflect honestly, we realize that we belong to other groups too. We belong to the broken people group, the outsider group, those considered the other. And to all those who recognize that they belong to these groups, Jesus says, come and belong to me. And in the end, you will find that all the other belongings count for very little. Belonging to Jesus counts for more than anything else. And one day, as we sit in the great dinner in the kingdom of God, we will find that even our status as broken outsiders becomes irrelevant because we belong to him. Amen.